Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Doug Ford's government admits that it did make mistakes with the COVID-19 measures. This came after growing calls for the Premier to step down for his handling of the pandemic. So why are they still ignoring those experts? Child care was the centerpiece of yesterday's federal budget. We get more details on that first budget in more than two years with MP Ed Fast and Dr. Lori Turnbull. And George Floyd's death in police custody unleashed a global storm last year. And now the world watches the Minneapolis jury for the outcome in the Chauvin trial. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Some discussion about whether or not we should be outside, inside, etc. during lockdowns and pandemics. As you know, there's a lot of pushback from uh, the public and from an, op- an awful lot of other health authorities uh, about some of the moves that uh, the Ford government announced last Friday. They've already rolled back some of those things. Uh, as a matter of fact, so much heat that uh, the government house leader, Paul Calandra, basically said, you know what, we, we had a bad week. He says our programs were poorly communicated and poorly executed. Well, uh, Justin Ling was on our program yesterday. Justin, of course, is a writer for the Globe and Mail and for McLean's Magazine. And uh, he says it's a little more simplistic than that. He says the problem here is the Ford government has been ignoring the advice of the science advisory table. The thing is that the Ford government has a panel of experts that it itself tapped to be an independent source for advice, really an independent body that will write up the playbook on exactly what you ought to do and what needs to be done. And I don't think anyone ever anticipated that, you know, that panel's advice is called the science table. I'm not sure anyone ever anticipated we'd follow their advice to the T. But Doug Ford has taken that advice and basically shredded it and done exactly the opposite of what they're telling him. Uh, as evidenced by a discussion we had uh, yesterday on the program with Dr. Peter Uni, who was the director for that science table, uh, if you heard the interview, it's on the podcast from yesterday too, uh, Dr. Uni was just beyond frustrated uh, that they're offering advice, the, this panel of experts, and, uh, and clearly the government's not paying any attention to it and going on with their own policies. To talk about this and the implications, because it has province-wide implications, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Abid Arya, who is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, and he himself, of course, a palliative care physician. Uh, Doctor, so good of you to be back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, Bill. You have long been an advocate in, in your specialty, of course, in long-term care or palliative care, uh, in, in recommending uh, government actions and, and the way that they should address some of the, the problems, and they are monumental problems, of course, within long-term care. Uh, I'll ask you, Doctor, the same question I asked Dr. Uni yesterday. How frustrated are you that the government doesn't seem to be paying attention to your professional and expert advice? Yeah, so frustrated is one word, Bill. I can also think <laughs> of many other words. I can, yeah. I, honestly, I think I'm feeling defeated. I'm feeling exasperated. And uh, many of us are just feeling absolutely exhausted as to why the government is not listening to their own science table. Why are they not listening to frontline health workers at this time when we're once again in the midst of a humanitarian catastrophe that was preventable? Well, as, as evidenced by the way that other jurisdictions have treated this and, and the strategies that they've undertaken, uh, and, and that's got to, I, I would imagine, just exacerbate the frustrated feeling that, uh, that you're feeling now, Doctor, because we see other areas, and I know that we can look to New Zealand and Australia and, 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 and Hong Kong and places like that, but right here, you know, in, in this country, on this side of the border, of course, you look at some of the, uh, the maritime provinces and the way they've handled it. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but they've done a considerably better job uh, by implementing, well, frankly, some of the stuff that people like you have been recommending. 
Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the case. And we see here that our provincial government often blames the federal government. But I, I, I agree with you, Bill, that logic doesn't make sense because the Atlantic provinces who have created the so-called Atlantic bubble have the same federal government. So I don't know, once again, why they don't understand the basic principles of public health, which are to keep people safe, to prevent as many deaths uh, as possible, and to sort of you know, have this proactive approach rather than one that's reactive, which is much worse for people's health. It's much worse for the healthcare system, which, you know, as we knew, even before COVID-19 was, was always stretched. And it's always obviously much worse for the economy as well. Well, there are a couple of things that just jump out, and, and I think they they helped put us in the position that we're in right now. Uh, one was, of course, a, a, a quote from uh, the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, last week in, in, to a CBC interview, uh, when they were asked how come they took so long to uh, implement some of the measures that that science table had recommended back in January and February. Uh, she basically said we wanted to see if the projections were actually going to have an impact on the hospital system. In other words, they sat and did nothing and waited until it got to that point, that crisis point, then started to react. Yeah, I mean, I have no words to describe what I'm feeling as I as I hear that. And of course, we're, I think many of us are aware of those statements. And it really sort of explains, uh, I mean, we absolutely need transparency about how these decisions are made when so many lives are on the line, so many people's livelihoods are actually on the line um, when we have to have these, you know, these shutdowns. And at this point in time, I mean, when we're actually at this terrifying point where we're maybe you know, possibly some days away from, you know, ICU and critical care doctors having to sort of implement these triage protocols. I mean, really, this just doesn't make no sense. And once again, I just bring it back to the basic principle of public health, which is to take preventative measures to stop as many people from suffering and dying from COVID-19 as possible is the number one aim. Well, and, and to that point, again, part of the conversation with Dr. Yuni yesterday says he it clearly, he says the, the government doesn't seem to understand the epidemiology of this uh, to suggest that you shouldn't go outside and, and use playgrounds or golf courses, even for that matter, uh, where physical distancing has been employed ever since they've been allowed to reopen some months ago right now, that, uh, that that's part of, of the, the plan. It's and, and the government seems oblivious to this, uh, especially when uh, Christine Nellie, the health minister, admitted yesterday that nobody on the health panel even recommended those closures yet they went ahead and did them anyway yeah i mean it just it just is is sort of baffles the mind right that i mean at this point in time they did rescind sort of the restriction on playgrounds but you still can't go out and play basketball i mean you can't go out and toss a frisbee i mean this just doesn't make any sense when the risk of spread is actually lower outdoors and the weather um, is starting to slowly improve people need this for their mental health and well-being but yet we have people that are essential workers uh, people working in factories and warehouses um, where, you know, you could be taking the bus, which could be extremely crowded. You might be in this crowded factory setting once again, where you may be exposed to 300 other people who are not in your household. And then once again, you'll go back to this crowded apartment setting or perhaps this extended family setting where then you'll go out and get the groceries. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense as to why they wouldn't protect essential workers. Well, and we can get into the thing about paid sick days, and I know that the, the Minister McNaughton that we've had on the program has basically said, well, the federal program is in place, and that's what they should be doing. Well, we already know the federal program is not very effective, uh, and you have to wait even if you do qualify, and a lot of people don't even qualify for it. So there's there's a lot of finger-pointing that's going on here, as opposed to some, some solid action to try to get things moving. I, I want to, if I could, well, I've, you, you 
given us some time here today, Doctor. Uh, focus right. in a little bit into your wheelhouse here, about long-term care and palliative care. Uh, we know now that uh, the, the crisis situation in the hospitals and in ICUs is so bad that they're now looking for beds anywhere. Uh, it's some pediatric hospitals. I mean, Sick Kids Hospital now is taking adults uh, because of the overflow across the road at, the Toronto, at Toronto General. Uh, we just heard today that some of the London hospitals have been told that they're going to be taking patients in from the GTA. They're also looking at beds in long-term care facilities. Uh, I don't think I need to remind you about the, the, the problems to do with staffing and, and level of care within those facilities right now. If they start looking for empty beds there and transferring people over to there, what does that do to an already tenuous situation? Well, um, you know, I, I think we all know what happened in long-term care. I hope we all know what happened in long-term care in the first and second waves. Uh, really, it was long-term care residents, staff, and families that, you know, bore the brunt of the pandemic, and there were so many preventable deaths uh, in long-term care. People suffered and died alone, and really what was the crucial missing piece of the puzzle was staffing in long-term care. Staffing was already precarious in long-term care, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, where many homes were already stretched thin and could barely make it by on a good day. And when COVID-19 happened, um, you know, many people left the profession because they weren't paid well, they weren't being provided proper PPE. And even now, in many homes, I mean, they just simply do not have enough staff to care for the residents. So it's not just about moving beds, or, you know, moving, you know, like these are real people who actually deserve so much better. They, they absolutely have the right to receive proper care. And unless the government can guarantee a minimum staffing standard in these homes, I'm, of course, very afraid of this move, you know, to actually just transfer people en masse into long-term care homes. What about the PSWs in those facilities? I mean, if, if COVID patients are moved in, uh, are, are those staff trained properly to be able to look after them, plus their own patient load as well? Well, um, you know, what I'm hearing is that PSWs, once again, still remain uh, stretched thin on the front lines in long-term care. Of course, this is highly variable, and the trend, of mm -hmm. course, once again is, is that the municipal homes or the not-for-profit homes are doing much better uh, compared to the for-profit homes, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, the issue, once again, is that, once again, there's no requirement for a long-term care facility to have a, uh, a minimum number of staff. To, so to give people uh, who are listening an idea of what this looks like, Generally, in a hospital setting, uh, people may have, you know, one nurse looking after maybe, you know, as many as five or seven people. Um, you know, that's kind of the acute care setting. And of course, uh, in a long-term care home, I'm not saying that that should be the exact number, but we have one nurse looking after maybe 30 residents and 60 at night. Um, one uh, PSW could be looking after maybe six or eight people, but it could be as many as 20 or 30 because there's no requirement to have a specific, you know, a specific number of caregivers. Um, there's no legislation. And if somebody calls in sick, well, you're kind of just out of luck. Your colleagues are out of luck and, um, you know, so are the residents. So that just can't continue to happen. And once again, we're hearing of these ongoing shortages because the root causes of the problem have not yet been addressed. Well, and as a matter of fact, we've heard, and I'm sure you have too, Doctor, uh, anecdotally at least anyway, uh, that some staff are just quitting and just saying, I, I can't do this anymore. It, the, the, you know, the money, as you say, the, is not very good. So some of them are still working a second job simply to try to make ends meet, uh, which is not healthy. We know that that, that was problematic and, and it remains a problem. Uh, the pay levels, the staffing levels, where a lot of people are just saying, look, it, I don't need the grief anymore. Uh, which really kind of flies in the face of what we're hearing from the government, that, look, we're addressing this problem, we're going to hire more people and train more people, and within two years everything is going to be fine, uh, which is, I guess, cold comfort to the people that are in those facilities right now. 
Yeah, well, two years. Uh, actually, as far as I understand, Bill, they've said four years. And this year, um, from my understanding, their promise is to increase the um, care that is provided per resident by 15 minutes. That's right, 15 minutes. Uh, and they're receiving about two and a half hours of care, per, or you know, residents are receiving two and a half hours of care on average, roughly, per day. And what everybody has been saying for decades is that the minimum requirement should be four hours. So 15 minutes obviously doesn't cut it. And the, you know, the, the life expectancy in these homes is not much, about 18 months. So that really doesn't make any sense. And they have committed to hiring some staff. Um, um, but it falls far short in terms of the new long-term care beds uh, that are being built, and it once again doesn't measure up to that minimum standard that is required. So where do we go from here? I mean, in talking to your, yourself and other doctors over the last couple of days uh, about this frustration, I, I mean, even yesterday when uh, Mr. Calandra, who's the government house leader in Queen's Park for the uh, Progressive Conservatives, uh, suggested that, you know, that we, we need to do a better job, he, he didn't say, hey, we've messed up. And I'm not looking for any mea culpas and, and chest thumping or anything like that. But what we're saying is maybe there's a better way to do this. Uh, we've heard nothing from the Premier on this, by the way, uh, as to, to the uh, strategy, if in fact there's going to be a different strategy on this. But would you expect at least the first step in this process, if there's going to be a, a, a process of trying to rectify the problems, is, is listening to the experts, listening to the people that are on the front lines, listening to the people that have expertise in epidemiology and palliative care? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, once again, I absolutely agree with Dr. Yuni and the rest of the science table. They were providing advice to the government far before, as we know, in long-term care. Uh, yep. There were many examples when we look at other provinces. There were examples of, you know, advocates, experts. Really, everyone was united in sort of saying what they wanted the government to do. And for some reason, that really did not happen. It cost so many lives. It was once again worse in terms of the economic cost. And I think it's a reflection of, of poor leadership failed leadership to be very frank i mean real leadership should mean that you can you're, you're open to criticism you're open to feedback you can actually admit you were wrong you're, you're wrong and actually i think that's okay and in fact that's needed when so many lives are at stake but digging in your heels sort of these distractions these the sort of dishonest communication just to save yourself is not what anybody is looking for at this time well, yeah, and that's that's the first step is is just to say, look at you know we we need to listen to the experts here. We we've got to pay attention to what's going on because uh, you know what we've tried and what this government has tried over the last eighteen months it just has not been effective. I mean, we're in one of the worst situations. I, I don't want to refer too heavily on that Washington Post editorial from the other day that suggested that the premier should resign because he's not going to resign. I mean, let's be pragmatic about this. Uh, but there are some shortcomings here, and they have to understand and realize that there's going to have to be a change in direction. Uh, we'll see what happens with that listen i got about a minute left and while i've got you i we're going to talk about the budget in greater detail a little bit later on in the show uh but one of the the, the planks that uh, minister freeland talked about yesterday was national standards for long-term care facilities uh now my understanding doctor is that that's not going to happen without a buy-in from all the provinces on this uh are you are you optimistic that that can happen that, that, that there will be some sort of standards that we can all adhere to um, I hope so. I, I can tell you that the funding that was provided was not uh, sufficient. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I was disappointed about is that there wasn't actually this commitment to what the basics of these minimum standards should look like. As for example, we just mentioned this four hours of hands-on daily care for each long-term care resident. There was no commitment to that. There was no sort of commitment to an investment in home care, which, as we know, has been long neglected. And this is why Canada disproportionately um, sort of has this tendency to warehouse people uh, who are getting older and getting sicker. Um, Nothing to support caregivers who, of course, you know, do a lot of the unpaid work in these long-term care facilities and in home care. So to be honest, it was a bit of a disappointment uh, for me. Uh, And I think, you know, if I mean, after so many people died and suffered in such a tragic way, I mean, I'm I'm actually shocked, uh, you know, when I reflect on the actions of all of our governments as to why so little has been done. What will it take? I don't know. I really don't know. That's a question I guess a lot of us are asking. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure and very insightful to get your perspective on this. Uh, Stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amit Aurya, of course, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in long-term care and, of course, a palliative care physician himself. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was budget day in Ottawa yesterday, uh, headline-making on uh, a couple of different facets, actually. Uh, Finance Minister Christia Freeland, who is the first female minister to actually deliver a budget uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, and also, it was the first budget in over two years as we have gone through the pandemic and a number of other machinations uh, politically over the last little while. It's uh, receiving mixed reviews, as you might expect in situations like that. There's an awful lot of spending that's involved in this and new money that's being put forth at this particular time, including for a, a national daycare program, which is not a new promise, but uh, one that uh, a lot of folks are looking forward to, but there's still many hurdles for that to be a reality as well. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Ed Fast. Uh, Ed is the uh, Conservative Shadow Minister for Finance. Uh, Ed, busy day today. Thanks for taking some time with us. I really do appreciate it. You're very welcome. Good to be on your show, Bill. Let me ask you, right off the bat, I'll pull a quote from uh, Minister Freeland's uh, presentation yesterday. Uh, She says, this budget is uh, healing the economic wounds left by COVID recession and creating more jobs and prosperity for Canadians in the days and decades to come. Uh, What's your read on that? Well, I don't know about the rhetoric about healing because I look at this as the biggest spending, most massive budget Canada has ever had. It is the most massive debt we've ever had, biggest deficit we've ever had. And there may be scarring down the road because future generations of Canadians will have to pay for all of this. And we had hoped that this budget was actually going to provide Canadians with some hope and confidence in a secure future, that they could see a light at the end of the tunnel and know, listen, uh, the finances of the country are in safe hands. The economy is in safe hands. This budget doesn't do that, doesn't deliver that. I, I get that. And, you know, as, as I mentioned yesterday on the program, in anticipation of this, and we know that uh, probably, you know, economists are, are going to look at this and say, no, 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 this is the wrong way to go. But this was a budget that I saw yesterday uh, that was designed for people that are, are de- you know, dealing with pandemic right now. And, and I guess what I'm talking about here, Ed, is the stuff I'm hearing about anecdotally from people that called into the show about a number of issues that we've been dealing with uh, through COVID, I don't know that they're concerned. I mean, they, I think everybody understands the importance of the future and, and, and the debt that's being accumulated here. But a lot of them that I'm hearing from are more concerned about the here and now, you know, getting my store open again, getting customers back in there. They don't care much about, you know, debt to GDP ratios. They just want to look at their own bottom line right now. Uh, 
how how would your government and how your party, if you were in government, respond to that? Very good question. I'm glad you asked that because we as conservatives have made it very clear that we do support the programs, the emergency benefits that the government has brought forward. And by the way, we've voted in favor of them each and every time. Uh, the challenge here is not that we don't support the emergency programs. It's all of the additional debt that the government is now piling on. For example, on top of all of that, all the emergency programs, Minister Freeland brought forward a $100 billion stimulus fund. She used that word stimulus to try to convey the idea that this would be invested in uh, improving the productivity of our country, competitiveness, the long-term prosperity of the country, positioning us for success long-term. And yesterday we found out that that $100 billion wasn't actually mostly stimulus. It was more emergency programs, which, by the way, we're likely going to be supportive of. But it was much more than that. It was just a fire hose of spending clearly directed at an election that's just around the corner. And that is irresponsible because guess who has to pick up the tab down the road? It's future generations of Canadians. And this finance minister did not deliver a debt management strategy the way the prime minister had instructed her to. So it's a big fail. Let's talk about maybe one of the biggest elements of the budget. And, of course, that was the National Daycare Program. There are a bunch of other things, as you know, that have been rumored. But uh, this one is something they laid out there. And as I mentioned just before our conversation, this is not a new idea. I mean, they've been promising it. The NBP have been advocating it for it. Uh, even the Conservative Party, of course, has come up with their version of this as well. Uh, as presented right now, this is really... Uh, a proposal that's going to have to be a partnership between the provinces and the federal government. So, I mean, this is not a, a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. It's supposed to be a 50-50 process here. Uh, I know your, your leader, Mr. O'Toole, was not crazy about this idea during the, the post-budget interviews that he did yesterday. Uh, what's, what's plan B then? What would you like to see happen there? Well, firstly, let me restate that we do believe that government has to find a way of supporting women to make sure that they can engage in the workforce. You know, we're facing a demographic challenge. The baby boomers are exiting the labor force. Where do we find the workers? Women want to plug into the workforce, so we do have to do something for them. And we're not opposed to enhancing childcare options for Canadian families. The problem is, like so many other liberal policies, this is an Ottawa knows best one-size-fits-all policy. Now, we don't yet know the details of it, but we know enough from what's sketched out to know that there will be many families that will be left behind. And we also know that it's going to take years for this program to be put in place because, as you've mentioned, this requires negotiation with the provinces. Remember, this goes back to 1993 when the Liberals promised a national child care program here we are almost 30 years later and it's still not there now there have been other efforts as you know we conservatives brought in the canada child care ben or child benefit which has been you know uh very successful in supporting families uh there are ways of actually delivering a child care program that ensures that no families 
No women fall through the cracks. They're all supported by government in engaging in the workforce if they wish to. And I know Mr. O'Toole talked about that a little bit yesterday, too, in the interviews that I saw. Uh, but I think the concern and what, what the critics have always said about about that, the program that you're talking about now, Ed, and I know Mr. O'Toole and, and yourself are hinting at the idea that maybe increasing that child tax credit, uh, child benefit, rather, uh, to try to accommodate that. But does that create new spaces? I don't see, The concern here is not simply a matter of affordability, although that's a major concern, especially here in Ontario. It's also finding available spaces. And, and that if you don't have one, the other one is going to, cancel that out and we're no further ahead well by the way i'm not speaking against creating more uh, child care spaces that's absolutely critical across canada but not every family wants to have institutionalized uh, child care they may have a neighbor they may have a family member they may have a friend who provides that support and i don't believe that we should be leaving those families out all families across Canada are deserving of support if members within the family want to work but are caregivers at home. But And again, I hesitate to draw analogies between this and other government programs, but if something like, for instance, like, you know, national uh, health care programs, uh, you know, there are options. I mean, if you have the financial wherewithal and you don't want to go within the system, you can do that. There are experts and you can do other things within the, the system. Uh, but there still has to be a foundation. There has to be a basis for that uh, for those that can't or don't want to do that. Uh, do we not need to take that same sort of philosophy towards a daycare program? I agree that we need to provide flexibility within a national child care program. I don't see that being signaled by Justin Trudeau in this budget. Um, Justin Trudeau tends to prefer a top-down approach, his way or the highway. And uh, that is not what families have been asking for. They want to see child care spaces created. They want to see flexibility. They want to see options for families. And that's what we as conservatives stand for. Well, the debate begins today, I guess, doesn't it, Ed? Uh, with it the sure proposals. does. And I, I know your leader, Mr. O'Toole, is going to make some proposals. Uh, and, of course, the block have, have got their ideas of what they want to see in here. So uh, now we're getting down into the uh, into the arena and see just what's going to happen over the next little while. As I mentioned off the top, busy time for you today, I know, and I really appreciate you spending some time. I'm sure we'll talk more about this down the way in a few days when we get some uh, some concrete proposals as well. Take care, Ed. I'm sure, I'm sure we will. Thank you so much. Ed Fast, of course, Conservative Shadow Minister of uh, Finance, uh, and uh, his take on what's going on. And uh, by the way, Mr. O'Toole did not say they were going to vote against this, uh, although they do have that as an option, clearly, because um, uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, the NDP leader, has said they are going to support the budget, notwithstanding the fact that he's got some concerns about it. So that would be enough to carry any confidence motion that's going on in the house but that's not to suggest that there may not be some alterations to what was being proposed yesterday so let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts in this uh, about exactly what's going on and, and the concerns about future debt and things of this nature which do have to be part of the discussion uh, but that has to be balanced against the here and now. Uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull is the Director of the uh, School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University and uh, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Doctor, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Laurie, what's your read on what you heard yesterday from the minister? Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of surprises, right? Like now we're, we're at the point where we do budget lockups, but a lot of what the content is is actually released in advance. 
So we sort of, we knew that the childcare piece was coming. We knew it was going to be heavy spending. We knew there was going to be pieces around the green economy. And so I didn't see a whole lot that was a surprise. And I don't think that even the, the, even though it was massive, even though over 700 pages, tons of spending, even that wasn't a surprise. We kind of knew this was coming. And I think the, the liberals are positioning themselves for a campaign whenever, whenever we see that happen. Yeah, which I don't think is going to be imminent. As I say, I didn't get the sense that any of the opposition parties, uh, with the possible exception of Mr. Bonchette, uh, are eager to, to pull the plug on this government. Uh, but this is, a, I, I suppose, if this were to pass and, and, and then we were to move forward on this, uh, it, it would serve as a pretty decent template as a, as a campaign uh, strategy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think they, they're they in a strange spot in that I think that the opposition parties, A, don't necessarily want to vote against a lot of what's here in terms of content. Not that they can't, but I think it's they're in a bit of a tough spot. And also because we're in a pandemic situation, especially the numbers in Ontario, where an election isn't really a possibility. And so usually the opposition parties have that, you know, threat of election in the back pocket if, if it's a minority, but they don't really have that now. And at the same time, I'm not sure, like, in a way, it's hard to understand why the liberals want an election anyway, right? Like, they're kind of, they're getting what they want with a, with a minority. How much, mm-hmm. how much more could be going their way if, we, if it was switched to a majority? But it just kind of speaks to, I think, the, the allergy we have in Canadian politics around minority government in a sense that it's a temporary thing. Well, and as you and I have talked about in the past, uh, some of the most constructive and, and productive uh, governments we've had have been minority governments. They've got a, an awful lot of stuff done if there's a sense of cooperation, uh, which I don't really sense with the, with this group right now. I mean, as you mentioned, the pandemic, it, it just overrides just about everything here. And there's, a, I think, a reticence on behalf of all of the opposition parties right now to, to, to bear te- too heavily down on the government right now because there's going to be some pushback saying, hey, you, th- that's a program I need. You know, don't, don't talk about this. You know, like let's go through this line by line and say okay you want to cut expenses and you, this is going to cost way too much money which which one of these support programs are are you wanting are willing to cut out right now and i don't know that they have an answer for that yeah like what i noticed uh yesterday is as part of the budget speech as opposed to sort of the content of it but just the approach that the ministers took is that it is that she she basically said that right you know like if if you think that we shouldn't be spending this money well, what would you cut? And what, what was your experience in the pandemic, right? And so I think she was kind of pushing people to think big and to be empathetic. And even if you personally don't need something, think of somebody else who does. And so, and then all kind of in the, in the bracket that for lots of different reasons, low interest rates being one of them, we can afford to do this. And so I think she was trying to sort of stave off any kind of accusation that this was a fiscally irresponsible budget for her, this is within our means. It's time to do these things. We've, we can't acknowledge that there are these problems and not do anything about it. All of that said, I mean, I think Annamie Paul has made a really good point. This is a minority parliament. Um, we're not really sure how much of this is going to all go through, right? And so I'm sort of like, I find in the, in the day after, the morning after, I'm kind of thinking, okay, like, I wonder, we're probably not going to see all of these things happen, even if the intent is there. So I wonder, I wonder how much of this will actually come to fruition. Well, and the daycare program, I guess, is probably the best example of that. As I was just talking about with uh, with Ed Fast, uh, the 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 shadow cabinet minister for finance for the Conservatives. Uh, basically, what Minister Freeland was proposing here is a partnership between the provinces and and the feds. Well, first of all, Quebec's not going to be on side with this because they've already got their program and they're mm-hmm. quite happy with that. So, there any anything that 
that comes along down the road here, they're, they're going to opt out of anyway. Uh, but, you know, trying to get the premiers to agree on anything, especially when it comes to shared jurisdiction, is like herding cats. And that's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. I mean, I think some, some of what she said yesterday was basically, listen, like we're, we're coming to this conversation with a big bag of cash. We're investing. And I think part of that was, was her saying, listen, you can rely on the federal government as a good faith partner. But also, we, we have a, a rightful seat at this table because we have the money to invest in something that Canadians have said they need and we know that they need. And so I think that kind of creates a bit of a moral authority, if not a financial authority, for the federal government in the conversation. But as you say, provinces have different needs. Um, Quebec doesn't want the federal government meddling in its child care program, but it would certainly like the financial support that all the other provinces oh, yeah. are going to be getting. So, you know, it's gonna, I think it's going to be different conversations with different premiers. Which is part of the problem, of course, and we've seen that happen with the discussions during the pandemic about long-term care, about vaccine distribution, and so many other things as well. Uh, but the the bottom line here, as you say, is is this is I think an idea whose time has come, uh, because there's a there's a long history here of promises about a daycare program, and they've never come to fruition. Uh, I guess the closest they came was 2005 with Paul Martin and uh, Minister Ken Dryden, mm-hmm. who seemed to get some consensus. Of course, funny thing happened on the way to consensus; they lost the election, uh, and that went out the window. So that that was gone by the wayside but there was always an argument against it back in those days saying look at nice idea but we just can't afford it but i'm getting the sense that there's a business case and an economic case that's been presented right now uh that there is i think a very strong consensus that this has to happen now how it's going to actually look is is up for discussion and debate but now but i mean it just seems as if all the parties are on side that we've got to do something about this and this has to be the time for it yeah and I think a big part of it, too, is acknowledging what the experience of women has been during this uh, economic crisis that is part of COVID-19. And I think there, there is a huge you know, economic argument to be made that the childcare piece has to be in place in order for women to be able to re-engage the workforce and to be able to engage it fully. And so it's not just about, I mean, there's, there's absolutely a do the right thing argument here. And obviously, there's quite a bit of, of political will around this. And this, as you say, this has been tried before. And this, you know, a, a number of people pointed out yesterday, this looks an awful lot like Thomas Mulcair's platform in 2015. But I think in addition to all of that, it's, it's also there is an economic argument for a completely engaged workforce, one that is equitable, one that is comprehensive and, you know, where everybody can thrive. So that's I think that's that's where we're at. Are there any deal breakers here? I, 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 as, as I said, Mr. O'Toole is going to make some presentations today and some alternatives, well, for instance, to the daycare program, or the proposal anyway. Uh, they've got the, the muscle, uh, the opposition parties do, if they want to do, to say, no, we're going to do it this way instead, uh, which is going to cause some sort of a reaction, I guess, from the government. I mean, this this is far from being settled at this stage. And, and as you say, with a minority government, it's not as if they can say, here's the budget, take it or leave it. Uh, the opposition parties do have the wherewithal to make some changes here. If they so are so inclined yeah and like some of it might be around the how to as opposed mm-hmm. to whether or not right and, and but in something like childcare, that the the road to it right how we actually achieve that and what it looks like though that could be very very different programs so it's not just it being a detailed thing it's also you know there are huge differences between different styles of creating a healthcare system and whether you give the money to families to to kind of deal with it themselves or you create a system and then you know is this system true whatever's going to be created is that going to be you know beneficial for everyone is are are there still families who are going to fall between the cracks there and then how do we manage that so i think there's lots of room for debate around that stuff i'm i'm interested to see how the liberals play it 
because, you know, are they inclined to give some sort of concession to Jigmeet Singh? What will that be, right? What is his line in the sand going to be? Is he going to try to extrapolate something or has he kind of played his hand already by saying he's not going to force an election? And I'm not sure if there's any political reward for the liberals and looking like they're playing nice with the other parties. I'm not sure about that. Well, it's... Uh starts today. I mean, this is when the battles start in, uh, on the Commons floor, but exactly what's going to be happening, and we'll watch with great interest. Uh, Doctor, mm -hmm. always a pleasure to get your perspective. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The deliberations continue in Minnesota right now. The jury is now deliberating the fate of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, Mark Remillard has the details for Minneapolis. It was a full day of closing arguments. The prosecution took more than an hour and a half to deliver its final statements to jurors, telling them that it's not police, it's not George Floyd on trial, it's Derek Chauvin. And they need to think about whether or not they really believe that George Floyd would have died that day had it not been for Derek Chauvin. The defense, meanwhile, telling jurors to use their common sense, that it's not unreasonable to think that George Floyd's heart the drugs in his system, even the carbon monoxide from the back of the squad car could have played a role in his death. So what can we expect and, uh, well, how long are the deliberations going to take? Uh, I believe the judge in his charge to the jury yesterday basically said, uh, you know, plan for a long time and hope for a short time. Uh, it's pretty much in their hands, I suppose. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Jeffrey Dvorkin, who is a former director of journalism and a senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Massey College. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Delighted to join you. Let me ask you right off the top, and, and I want to go back to the charge to, uh, to the jury, too, that uh, uh, Judge Cahill made yesterday, uh, which I guess is not unusual for him to say something like this, but he said, during your deliberations, you must not let bias, prejudice, passion, sympathy, or public opinion influence your decision. I, I guess the question here, Jeffrey, is how can they not? Uh, I mean, they've been inundated with this stuff, surrounded by this. It's been in the news. There have been uh, other incidents which have been tied together to, to the to George Floyd thing at the same time. Uh, you can't just shut the world out, can you, when you're in a, in a jury situation like this? Oh, it's easier said than done. Yeah. And what the judge was trying to do was to tell the jurors to try to eliminate the more emotional sides of the trial, but the trial is intensely emotional, painful to watch, and and difficult to understand, to look at how the media has tried to deal with this story to be fair, but also to understand that there's a context to all of this. And I think that what's happened, among other things, is that even though the judge said that the police are not on trial, Public opinion, it seems to me, in the United States has put the whole concept of how policing is done on trial here. And that becomes part of the outcome. If the ruling by the jury is a guilty verdict, is it manslaughter? Is it murder? And the consequences for that are very powerful. I mean, we saw a few years ago in Los Angeles when there was a... Uh, a beating up of, of, of a black driver, uh, and, and it was videoed by someone across the street. This is in the early 90s. Now, everybody King, yeah. has an iPhone. Everybody is a news photographer of some sort, and that puts a different kind of complexion on these kinds of stories. 
Uh, which, by the way, was one of the linchpins, of course, of the prosecution was that video that I guess we've all seen, at least portions of it anyway, over the last little while. And, and they seem to make that the whole foundation. And uh, I, I guess the message out of this long hour and a half uh, uh, summary that uh, the prosecution gave up, Jeffrey, was uh, believe your eyes. You saw it happen right in front of you. Exactly. And, and the fact is the whole world is watching. The idea that there is some kind of neutral way of evaluating this is just, is, is just impossible to understand. And at the same time, the media in, in and around Minneapolis trying to do a job at a time when emotions are so hot. Um, and the other issue that was, that's been covered is how many times in the last 12 months someone has been murdered by the police in the United States. The latest numbers are it's close to 1,100, and most of them are brown or black people. So this creates a whole context which the media is reporting and that the police apparently feel like they are under threat of some sort. And a number of journalists around trying to cover this story, they have, they have been harassed and, and beaten and arrested um, obviously, everybody is on a on edge in this in this case. Journalists, the public, the police, and the loss and and the the system of justice in the United States—they're all under incredible scrutiny. Well, because of some of the past incidents that you, you've referred to, and there have been some horrific ones that we've seen uh, over the last little while, including, you know, the, the wrong address breaking into a house and, and shooting a young Atlanta girl uh, and, and some other situations like this. Uh, by and large, there are an awful lot of people have not been satisfied with the judgments or with the carriage, or as some would suggest, miscarriage of justice. Uh, so I, I guess the, the, they're lazy focused on what's happening in Minnesota right now uh, because they're looking for, well, what they consider to be justice. Exactly, and and the influence of uh, people from the African American community have played a huge role in this. Uh, member of Congress Maxine Walters has said, "We want to see a guilty verdict on the charge of murder, and if not, there will be trouble." And the judge said, "This may be cause for a, a mistrial for a member of of Congress for the House of Representatives to say this." and create an environment of such uh, anger uh, may have had a deleterious effect on the outcome of the trial. I think that whatever the outcome is, um, it's, going to be, it's going to be a very difficult time in the United States. Part of the problem is also how police forces in the United States have been sold military equipment by the Pentagon, leftover stuff from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been transferred or sold at, 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 a, at a low price to police forces around the United States. So unlike in Canada, thankfully, um, we don't see in Canada those kinds of anti-personnel carriers, pers- uh, armored personnel carriers, sorry, um, that, that litter police departments all around the United States, which give the, the impression that um, the war has come home to the United States. When George Floyd died last year, uh, and, and as I've mentioned, some of the subsequent uh, killings that have taken place too, especially with people of color, uh, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement uh, 
flourished. I mean, it was all of it was a nationwide situation. Uh, the defunding police uh, scenario became very, very big. Uh, I, I know. Jeffrey, they haven't gone away, but they seem to have taken a back seat to an awful lot of the other concerns uh, vis-a-vis pandemic and things of this nature. Uh, no matter which way the verdict goes uh, in this particular trial, uh, does that rekindle that debate and that discussion about defunding of police services and police forces right across, well, I was going to say the United States, but probably, let's face it, we're not, we're not, we're not oblivious to it here, too, because we've had those discussions on this side of the border as well. Absolutely, and even though the number of people killed by in police shootouts in Canada is proportionately much lower than it is in the United States. There's still, in the last 12 months, have been about 35 people shot to death by police in Canada, mostly, as it turns out, by uh, reports done on CTV and CBC. Most of those shootings have been done by the RCMP. So there's a whole kind of culture of the use of um, armed force uh, inside police, organizations and municipal and federal and state police in the United States and in, and also in Canada, local police and uh, the RCMP. The, so there is a kind of a reckoning that will be coming, uh, certainly in the United States, but it also, we, not, we shouldn't be too smug in Canada. It's our kind of congenital default position to be smug about, about these things. We haven't done such a great job in this country either. We've seen the fallout, as you say, from some of the past incidents and, and even some of the, uh, uh, the the displays that have gone on here. You know, Ferguson, Illinois, and some places like that where there have been two or three or four or five days sometimes of, of unrest within communities. Can you remember, Jeffrey, a time when there was so much anticipation? I use that term advisedly because uh, it's on both sides here, uh, both pro and con. Uh, there's going to be some fallout no matter what happens when this verdict comes down. And, and you know, we heard uh, during our reporting this morning that even President Biden has had some discussions uh, with state and local officials, uh, not just there, but in, in Washington and other places, about the possibility of extra security. They're, they're bracing for for a huge wave coming up here, no matter what the verdict, whether it's guilty, not guilty, whatever the case might be. Exactly. And, and the problem is, is that the digital culture has kind of acted as an accelerant to the flames around these issues of race and gender. When people are able to communicate as quickly as they are now compared to, say, back in the 60s, um, it creates a different kind of environment. Uh, one of the interesting times around this was in the Bay Area in San Francisco in the early 70s, the kidnapping of Patty Hearst, which you may recall, but at that time there was a bombing a week in the San Francisco area. So there was, a, there was tremendous anxiety and tension going on all around the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. The same kind of, uh, actually, anxiety exists now, but it's been accentuated by the fact that people are able to share and communicate and disseminate the what they are feeling and hearing and seeing on an instantaneous basis unlike back in the day I, and i know i'm glad you brought up the situation here with uh, with representative waters uh, the democrat for california uh, who's basically saying guilty v or there's going to be trouble if there's going to be problems uh and social media obviously feeds into that doesn't it i mean i in 1969 i guess it was 
Uh, Richard Nixon made a similar comment during the Charles Manson trial, but, you know, hoping that he gets convicted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there was no social media then. And and if you didn't hear about it, you know, it, it, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, everything goes viral now as soon as something gets said like this. And the video of, of, of Maxine Waters saying this and, of course, the retweets that have gone on right now uh, really just kind of fans the flames, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I'm not sure what can be done about that other than the fact that Somewhere along the line, there has to be some way of moderating what people are saying without infringing on their right for, to free speech. And that becomes the big challenge of our time. We, we have the ability to express ideas in a greater way than ever before, but at the same time, some of these ideas and thoughts are inflammatory and maybe shouldn't be said but who's going to who's going to decide what should and shouldn't be said that that's a challenge you have two leg- entirely legitimate ideas one is free speech and the other is the ability of people to have reliable information and it's one, it's one of the things that my my textbook which has just come out talks about how can the public be helped to help understand how the media can be used to better effect well, because that's certainly a factor in what's going on here. I mean, we saw that video, that terrible video, of course, uh, the same day that George, he died, George Floyd died. And I, I think probably many of us looked at it and said, well, that's a slam dunk. I mean, we just saw it happen right in front of our eyes. Uh, but the, the decision hangs in the balance here. Uh, and, and because of the reporting that's gone on and because of the investigative work, investigative work that has gone on here, uh, to listen to both sides here and to listen to the defense argument, which some people thought might have been rather tenuous at the beginning, uh, but clearly there are some people that buy into this. And part of, I guess, the, the job of the journalist right now is to, to indicate to the, to the public that, you know, there's nothing wrong with having emotion involved in this, uh, but when you're dealing with points of law, that has to be factored into it, too. It can't be just done on raw emotion. That's right. But the problem is, if the media doesn't report what's being said, and allows other less reliable people to report these things, then you you get into this position of, should the media be censoring what is going on out there? And that beca- that obviously is, is enormously problematic at every level. On the one hand, the media, yours and, and, and all the others, um, have an obligation to re- report responsibly. But by exercising a certain editorial choice, they may be leaving things out that other people think should be included. And then you get into, you get into this tremendous argument about whether the media is stopping the public from understanding exactly what's going on. And who gave the media, I can hear it now, who gave the media <laughs> that kind of power to make those kinds of choices? That they, and they'll call it censorship. But I think that, in the end, the obligation of responsible media is to make choices responsibly. And that becomes the difficult part at a time when there's so many, so many more ways of, of sharing information than ever before. It's an age-old argument, though, isn't it? Uh, why did you leave that in? Why did you leave that out? That's, that's something that's always going to be questioned. Absolutely. And I can, <laughs> I can, I can hear echoes of my old... Uh, editors saying why didn't you include this or 
why have you excluded that and 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 those kinds of arguments which are healthy arguments by the way that go on in newsrooms all the time they still need to happen now the added element is the public and the internet absolutely uh jeffrey great to get your perspective thanks for uh, spending some time with us again today anytime Take care. Jeffrey DeVarkin, of course, that former director of journalism and a senior fellow at the University of Toronto's Massey College. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.